Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large. We do this in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We're recording this show on March 29th, 2017. Last month, we predicted a recession within 17 months, and today Ronaldo is seeing signs that it's already a looming threat. Ronaldo, you still see trouble coming. Uh, where do you want to start? I think we should probably look at the, uh, the recent political fiasco that was the attempt to roll back Obamacare and what the implications are for the market. Oh, thanks, Matt, and hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, I, am, um, I think that the, um, the early indications of the recession that we've been watching for are starting to appear. Um, give you an example, uh, we had a 0.4% growth in the um, retail sales in January, which would be about what one would expect if the retail sales were going to continue like last year because 0.4% is about a 4.5% growth for the year, uh, which would be a nice growth in retail sales, not brilliant, not stunning, but, you know, keeping you out of recession. But the growth rate as of February in the retail sales has been cut in half. So it's down to two-tenths of a point. Two-tenths of a point, if you think about it, Matt, uh, is a, a, when you multiply it by 12, is a 2.4% growth for the year. That's very anemic. And that's just now, and it's going to get worse. Why is it going to get worse? Well, the retail sales numbers are a reflection of how comfortable people feel about spending money. And what I want people to do is to take a look at um, the amount of money being spent by uh, the consumer and put yourself in the consumer's shoes. If the consumer thinks that times are going to get better, and why not spend more? Get that new suit of clothes, get that new toy, get that new phone. But if a consumer feels that things are going to tighten up, the consumer stops spending. And as the consumer stops spending, that in this economy brings on a recession. So why is it that consumer sales, retail sales, have started falling and cut in half from February to January? What happened in January and February? Well, I would say the political situation is basically what happened. Hmm. So it, it happened. It's two implications on that. And, and one of them we're gonna, is a great segue into what's going on in the mar- stock market and why the market, after going up and up, has going little, it's been going sideways and down for the last four or five days. Um, okay. So what happened with retail sales? As we touched on in last week's show, or last month's show, we said people don't spend when they're in fear. And right now, everybody in the 11 million undocumented workers category, they're scared. They're real scared. And many of them are related to people who are legally here. So figure that 11 million probably directly affects the families of about 30 or 40 million Americans. You don't want to put that in context. That's 10% of the total population. Is Yeah, they, they're directly related to... Directly related. Understand the plight of someone who is undocumented in this country. Directly. I mean, these are like, you know, the husband's here illegally, but the wife is an American, or the husband and wife are here illegally, but the two kids are American. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you're talking about probably 30 to 40 million. And nobody knows these numbers because it's all under... This is one of the terrible things about our, our illegals issue, is that without a, without a pathway to citizenship, we can't even get good data. I mean, is it 11 million? Is it 10 million? Is it 12 million? Is it 9 million? Nobody knows. And do they have another 2, 3, 5, 10, 20, 30 million people they're related to? Probably, if you look at the average statistics for people of Hispanic origin, for example. So, so we're talking about an enormous chunk of the U.S. population. We're talking about an enormous amount of, of um, people who, apart from the 30 to 40 million who are directly affected, and by the way, in that direct effect, I'm going to include um, the white suburbanite who has Hispanic that's illegal that does her house, you know, is, is a housemaid or or watches the kids. I'm talking about an illegal who drives a chauffeur car for some guy on his way to Manhattan. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of the different implications of these people who are going, oops, something's wrong. My life isn't working as well as it should. I wonder what's coming next. So that's number one, first and foremost. So those implications, very scary. Number two, you had a whole lot of people. What, 20, is it 26 million people have Obamacare? 
Uh, I believe it's more than that who have it. I think that there was at, at risk of 26, 24 million people losing Dropping it. off. It's like, yeah. it's like 40 million at this point. It's, it's a big, big number. If you take in, if you take in the block grants and Medicaid and all that in, it's probably about 40 million people. They were all scared to death last week, right? They were really getting worried. Yeah. That's why all those town halls went crazy. So now you throw in another character of fear. Let me give you one more. Take all of the Democrats who are extraordinarily afraid of this president and his agenda. Now take the people, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, who are afraid that somehow Russia has been meddling in our elections. And when you put all this fear in a box and you say, well, what's, what's, what's likely to happen? What will the administration do about it? Well, the administration actually uses fear as a political tactic. So it likes to generate fear. And by generating fear, it then feel, feels it creates its power base. The problem is in a consumer economy, when you generate fear, you get consumption reduction. And a consumption reduction leads directly to a recession in a consumer economy like ours, which is almost three quarters of it is consumption. So that's what's starting to happen to the, to the retail sales. And if you were to look at the allocation of retail sales by electronic versus walk in the store, I suspect it's even worse for walk in the store than it was for electronic. Meaning electronic is probably still growing for a bunch of reasons, including it's safe to go to your computer if you're an illegal. It may not be safe to go to the drugstore. So there's a lot of reasons why people are fearful, and that fear is translating into a desire to hold on to one's cash out of a sense of uncertainty. And that uncertainty is never good for the economy, and that's what's bringing retail sales down. And I would argue probably disproportionately bringing them down in brick and mortar versus electronic, although I honestly didn't have a chance to do that research before the show. It's a piece of research I'd like to do, but I just didn't have time to do it before the show today. So that's what's going on in the in the economy at a macro level. Now, what's going on in the stock market? Should I segue to that? Well, let's let's stay with that fear for one second. So that's one one of the factors is uh, a reduction in spending in part because of fear, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's an important one to drive home, which is we we don't know exactly how that affects directly uh, the market, except that we can we can attribute the decline in spending to people's lives being affected. I think that's a good bullet point. Now let's go to the stock market and what the traders and Wall Street is thinking. Okay, the stock market, the stock market is operating at a, at a level that every single thoughtful observer, and there is no question about this. This is not like a, I think so, but Johnny doesn't think so kind of an issue. The, 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 the overwhelming, it's not just consensus, like virtually every intelligent person who looks at the market would agree that the market is artificially high right now. How do you define high? You define, you, 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 you do that by looking at the ratio of the price of the stock to the earnings of the stock. And this is a little bit, it's called the PE ratio. And, and, and this is a little wonky, but for those of you who like the financial literacy stuff we do, tune in because this is financial literacy. It's, so the, the, the price of a stock at any given point in time is the amount of earnings of that stock multiplied by the number that reflects what the market thinks stocks should be worth. So historically, the high has been about 12 when, when the when the S&P, Standard Poor's 500, gets above 12, you're starting to get into um, the upper atmosphere. When you get up around 15, you're in the nosebleed section. And when you get to 17, you are completely out of whack. Now, why is that significant? Because we're at 17. Right. So, so that let me, huh? let me let me just go back through that with you real quick. So the price to earnings ratio is is essentially the price of a stock divided by its earnings uh, at this moment, right? The quarterly earnings well no they're usually projected on an annual basis for an annual basis okay yeah. so that that ratio is essentially you, you use numbers like let's say the the price is ten dollars for the to buy a stock a share in a company mm -hmm. and the earnings are one dollar that would give you a price to earnings ratio of 10 correct and today and, and if you were to say to me well gee that stock is going for twelve dollars on a dollar of earnings that's a pe of 12 reasonable getting towards the high end of the historical range but acceptable. If you told me you want to charge me $15 for that stock, I'd say, what are you crazy? 15 PE? That don't make any sense. Why would I give you 15 PE? 
And if you say to me it's 17 PE, every sophisticated investor in the world would say, you must know something I don't know, and you must know what's going up. How is it going to go up so high? In other words, how are earnings going to go up so high that when you get through the computation, so that dollar of earnings becomes a dollar and a half or two dollars of earnings, in which case the price ratio to earnings would change, right? Yeah. Is that, am, I, am I clear? Okay. Yeah. So the, the, the issue, therefore, is when you look at price earnings at a 17 multiple, which is where we are for the S&P 500, that is way, way above the highs of the market historically, not just the averages. It's way above the highs. It's at a number that most thoughtful observers of any consequence would say is unsustainable, meaning and, you cannot continue to trade at a 17 PE indefinitely. Right. It just doesn't make sense. And either the price is going to have to come down or the earnings are going to have to come up real right. soon. Gosh, that's good, Matt. That's exactly it. Now, what could cause the earnings to go up? Two things. One you make more money the old fashioned way. You actually make more money. Mm -hmm. So if I thought that we were about to go into a boom economy where uh, recession wasn't hanging on the edges and about to hit us, but we were gonna go into a four year, you know, dramatic increase of a GNP, um, something like you know, three to five, maybe even 6% GDP growth, I'd say, okay, I can see somebody's buying stocks today because a year from today, that company's gonna make way more money than it made today. Because right. there's more money going around, right? Yeah. Okay, so the old-fashioned way to get the PEA ratio to change is to make more earnings and therefore justify the higher price of the stock. So you do that through innovation, making better products, finding new places to sell, things running like the that. Running the company better. Uh, as you know, um, I, I, I'm involved for 30 years now with the, a company that used to be called Men's Warehouse. It's now called Taylor Brands because we also own Men's Warehouse, Joseph A. Banks, and a few other things, and and K&G and some other things. And and the market was very frightened as recently as um, six months ago that when we acquired Joseph A. Banks, we were going to come out sound like a broke, which was crazy, and that we couldn't turn around what was a failing economic model, which was the, the bank's model of, you know, initially they started giving out two for one and then three for one, buy one, get four, buy one, get five, buy one, get six. It was silly. I mean, you can't make any money at that. Eventually you go out of business or somebody acquires you like we did. And so the market miscalculated the speed with which we were during that turnaround, and they thought we were going to fail. And now the market knows, of course, we didn't fail. And the market's now accepted that we the turnaround is in place and we're having same-store sales growth and we've chopped off the, the worst 25% of our customer base that didn't want to pay us a fair price. And we're doing better on uh, with the customers that we have and the new ones that we attracted. And they also know that we make money now. Our gross margins are going up because we're not doing buy one, get six free. So that's the idea of the traditional way to grow your, uh, your earnings is through fundamentals, yeah. core competency. Yeah. Yeah, lose less money is one way. Operate better is more efficiently is another way. Prove that you can actually make money with a chain that was in, in a, a real loser, Joseph A. Banks. I mean, those are the ways you can lift the stock in the old-fashioned way to, to get the price up, meaning okay. the, the, the actual profits. But no one sees that on the horizon for the economy, right? I think they did until recently. I think that there was a, there was a you know the expression, they drank the Kool-Aid? I do. I think that the uh, I think the Wall Street drank the Kool Aid after Trump got elected, when no one thought he was going to get elected, and they said, "Well, what's this guy going to do?" Well, he's one of us. He's going to give us huge tax reductions. He's going to stimulate the economy. He's going to give us infrastructure spending. Uh, he's going to make way. He's going to make it way easier for the top two percent to keep their money and pay less taxes. He's going to dramatically reduce corporate taxation. I mean, they were really they were like their eyes were bulging. At this banquet, this, this this literally buffet of stimuli and tax reduction. So we saw a run on the markets and earning. Right. The belief that he, that Trump was going to somehow drive the economy. He was claiming he was going to drive it up to 3.6%, which is crazy. Right. So I mean, the, the P&E ratio, the price to earnings ratio went up because people were buying stocks in anticipation of higher earnings as a result and, of these policies. That's correct. And... What Wall Street does best is they sucker little people into the market. So if the stock market thinks that they can fool you into believing the price is going to go up, they'll bid the price up to you come in and buy, and then they'll dump, and then you'll, you'll get hurt. And see, that's why little people should never pay the stock market. That's why we say people, don't play the stock market. And we, we can talk even later, I hope, about if we get time for about national currencies. But you know, another thing you shouldn't play, but I want you to learn about so, so why shouldn't you play the market? Because you are never in the know. 
a really good friend of mine is now deceased. That, that one of my mentors in, in in the communications world said to me, you know, Ronaldo, basic rule of the market is bulls make money, like a bull in the stock market. A bear, somebody sells, they make money. Pigs get slaughtered. That's why they call them pork bellies. The idea is, if you think you're going to outthink the market because you're smarter, you're going to get burned. If you can find what's fundamental in the market that you believe in, then if you invest in that over time, you will win. But you won't win because you picked the exact moment when the market was going to drop or the exact moment when the market was going to go up because you don't control that. And the people that do aren't going to tell you how to do it because that's how they make money on you. Right. They only make money if the stocks go up and down. They don't make them when they go sideways. Now. So we've seen a we've seen a rise since the beginning so, of the so election. And, and by the way, there was an article recently in either the Journal or the F Financial Times, which said it looks like the professional fund managers are trying to s suck the little guy back into the market. Mm -hmm. And 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 the article was reporting it's starting to work. People are starting to come back in the market, which is crazy because the market's at an all time high. If we were at a ten PE, I'd say, come on in, little people. You can you can safely get in here. If the economy is going to be okay, if you're at a 17, that's set that you know well, you're right at the peak of the where it's going to start to drop. And the, only, the only question is when. Now, so that's what caused the euphoria, if you will, that the run up in the stocks since November. Why is the stock market correcting itself down now for the last four or five days, sideways and down? Well, the reason is because Wall Street now realizes that Trump can't deliver on most of what they were hoping for. Interesting. Okay, so what are they betting on today with the 17 PE? Well, what they're betting on is two things, one of which I believe Trump will accomplish and one of which he will not. The easy one he will accomplish is a repatriation tax. So there's about a trillion dollars. It's hard to tell for sure, but it looks like it's about a trillion dollars sitting offshore of the United States owned by American companies who have not paid tax on those earnings. And when they move, if they try to move those earnings back into the U.S., they would have to pay U.S. taxes. Okay, so a repatriation tax is a one times tax gift to all the companies that hold money overseas trying to escape U.S. tax. And what the consensus of opinion is, is that the tax will be something like five percent. So that means if you're a typical corporation and you were paying the, the, the statutory tax, which almost none do because there's all kinds of ways to shelter. But if you're paying the statutory tax, instead of 35%, you're gonna pay five. So that 5% on, on that money you bring back to America, that's a bargain. You just save 30%. So to put that in, you know, in, in, in context, for every million dollars you bring back home, and we're talking about companies with hundreds of millions of dollars overseas, for every million dollars you bring back home, you're gonna pay five million in tax instead of 35 million. You see how this works, right? For every million or for every billion? For every million you bring every every million you bring back, you're gonna pay a five percent tax. So uh, whether it's one million, ten million, or a hundred million. So if it's a hundred million, five percent would be five million instead of thirty-five million. But but my point okay. is it's the difference between five and thirty-five percent. It's huge. Right. And most companies, if not all, will take advantage of that. So let's assume that one trillion dollars comes back to America on a 5% repatriation tax, which I think Trump can get the votes for. In other words, I think the Freedom Caucus, which stopped the health care bill, the Freedom Caucus will go for that because it doesn't add to the deficit. And this is what's so, called a, t a tax holiday often, right? Where they say, yeah. if you bring your money back now, you can only tax it 5%. Mm-hmm. And sometimes referred to, referred to officially as a repatriation tax, repatriating the earnings back into the U.S. Okay, now, that huge windfall of will produce $50 billion in revenue for the U.S. government. Now, that's not a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. $50 billion doesn't go very far. I think $50 billion is equal to the amount of increase in the defense budget, that the military budget that Trump has proposed. But it certainly doesn't give you a trillion-dollar infrastructure program. It doesn't even give you a $100 billion infrastructure program. It gives you $50 billion for something. And if you want to give it to the military, it gives you nothing for infrastructure. So let's let's take a step on this because I, I think it's really important we talk about this. So the Freedom Caucus is call is essentially the Tea Party Caucus in the House, and their their number one priority is to keep uh, to keep the federal government from getting bigger. So what they do is they insist on spending cuts in 
perfect ratio with any spending increases, right? Yes. In fact, there's a there's a budget bill, as you know, which requires that when you pass a unless you unless you change the law, you, you have to have an equal offset to the increase in spending out over a 10 year period or you can't do it under the budget bill. Right. Right. And so that that poses a problem for Trump's plans because he has proposed some serious spending, uh, but hasn't really talked about how to actually pay for it. I mean, his his budget was pretty flat, but what 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 there what in his campaign he was proposing a lot of spending on infrastructure and leaving big programs alone and not cutting them so the freedom caucus asserted themselves recently in the healthcare uh, health insurance debate and killed his health health insurance bill which means and which is signaling that they might have an outsized influence on anything he's doing in the future correct Correct. And that's so, as the market shook, in other words. Well, I mean, here's what people believe, Matt. I mean, people believe that the Freedom Caucus, by standing down a sitting Republican president and a standing Republican speaker, so Ryan and Trump both got nailed here, right? By stopping them with 30 votes, 30 Republican votes in the House of Representatives because of the caucus, that's how many belong to the caucus, they basically for- collapsed what was otherwise something that the Senate the House and the President all wanted. So controlling all three um, avenues of government, legislative government and executive, they were not able to get agreement because the Freedom Caucus said, you know what, it's not draconian enough. So why is that important? Well, it's important because having achieved that enormously successful uh, victory over Ryan and Trump, just 30 guys, 30 little congressmen, I think that's going to embolden them to say to Ryan and Trump, do not bring us something with deficits because we hate deficits. The Freedom Caucus will say, if you can't tell us how to pay for it, we're not going to let you spend it. And so when you're talking about only $50 billion from a repatriation tax, how is Trump going to be able, which I think they will go for because it doesn't add to the deficit, as I said a moment ago, how's Trump going to pay for massive tax cuts for the wealthy, which is what he wants? And for corporations, I would say he's going to have a hard time. Now, why is that important? Because if he cannot get a massive tax deduction through for corporations, and to define massive for you, the betting on Wall Street as of a week ago, so before the whole thing fell apart on health care, the betting was that the corporate tax rate would come down from 35 to 20%. So 15 cents of every dollar made in America would be tax-free from the prior period that 15 cents would have dropped to the bottom lines of corporations and taken in the aggregate would have justified the PE at 17 because when you add that new profitability in, as I said, there's two ways to get the bottom line to go up. One is make more profit the old-fashioned way, and the other is get a tax break. So when you have a tax break, which allows you to keep more money on your bottom line, the ratio of your price of your stock to your earnings improves, meaning it goes down from 17 to 15 to 12, where it would be historical levels. Because your earnings go up with the price. Because your earnings go up by the amount of tax you did not pay. Right. That's the secret. Now, where we are today is the market's figuring, uh uh-oh, he's going to get the repatriation tax probably, because that's got no real enemies in the House, so he can do that with Republicans. But how on earth is he going to get a massive tax cut in for corporations? Maybe the Freedom Caucus will stop him. And if they do, there's no way you can justify a 17 PE. Oh my gosh, the market's way too high. Yeah. So what the market's doing now is adjusting itself for that reality. I also, I also want to put out another possibility here, aside from just the Freedom Caucus. You know, I would say that the other thing that Medicare, the 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 inability to slash Obamacare the way they promised, which was supposed to be the low hanging fruit. I mean, it was supposed to be even lower hanging fruit than tax cuts, frankly. Right. Because they've been campaigning on it for seven years uh, since it, its enactment was the upsurge in uh, from the other side of the uh, political aisle and the amount of involvement from people on the left and their vocal opposition to slashing Obamacare. Um, I'd say that that does not play bode well for the Senate, where the Senate Republicans are generally more conservative than House Republicans because they have to represent entire states in terms of their aggressiveness. Uh, and 
the possibility that uh, a massive tax cut bill would get a, a giant pushback from the from the left wing as well. Yeah, I, I mean, the the, the the progressive element of the Democratic Party and the so-called blue dog Democrats would both welcome tax innovation, meaning they would be willing to see money get shifted around if the net benefit to the average person goes up. Right. I don't think even the blue dog Democrats for sure not the progressive Democrats, want to see more money going to the top 2%. Now, the Republicans do, and they're very clear about that. That's who they work for. But the Democrats don't. And so the Democrats can be counted on to want to stop any kind of a massive tax cut because any kind of tax cut would come with a decrease in spending, and most likely the decrease in spending would come on those programs which the Democrats are most concerned about, okay? Safety net programs. So, so... So what's going to happen? Well, let's talk first about the 5% repatriation. Let's talk about the tax cut. On the 5% repatriation, what's going to happen is, and we've only done this once before in the history of the nation. And the last time we did this a few years ago, uh, something like 90% plus of all the money that came back to the country, so that would be a trillion dollars in this case, less than 5% paid as tax. All of that money went as either dividends or as uh, share repurchases. Now, that's important because that's a one-time event, and a share repurchase reduces the number of shares in circulation, so the amount of money earned per share goes up for a moment, just a brief moment in time, because there's fewer shares being divided into the total profit, so the, the profit per share goes up, and that has a momentary and fleeting impact on the price-earnings ratio. You follow what I took you down that road there? I do. Okay. So if the listeners don't, please call us, and we'll talk about it next week. The key issue here is it's a fleeting moment. And everybody in the market who's smart knows that. It's a it's non-sustainable increase in the value of the stock because it happens in a moment, then it's over. And if you didn't own the stock the day the share price repurchase happened, you're not going to get a benefit from it, a very minor benefit, because there's fewer shares in circulation. So that benefit will not help the average American. That will go to wealthy people, basically who own a lot of stock, you will get a slight benefit if you're an American who owns a 401k and it's heavily invested in the market. But again, a one-shot deal. Now let's, but that's it, then it's over. And, and I don't think the Democrats can stop it, so my guess is he's going to get that. Now let's talk about the massive corporate tax deduction. That, I think, is in real jeopardy because that deduction, he has to be able to make a case, will be able to be paid for out over 10 years with, with reductions in spending or under the current budget bill, it would be unlawful to pass such a budget. Now, that's important because unless you can get all the Republicans to vote together to lift or change the budget bill, then you have to justify any kind of a decrease in revenue by an equal decrease in spending. If you want to increase the spending to one category, i.e. military, by $50 billion, you have to find $50 billion worth of savings in some other category, the children's lunch program, for example. And you've already seen the Trump budget and how draconian it is. And you've seen the, how draconian the plan was for what would be left of, of health care if the Republican bill had it passed as, as uh, proposed. So I don't see the votes there to really do a massive tax overhaul. You know, you remember well, you were kind of young, but back in the Bush era, the George Bush era, they tried this massive tax overhaul and they couldn't really pull it off. We haven't really had a massive tax reorientation since the 80s. And my guess is that this one's going to be hard-pressed to get through. And if that's the case, what the market will do as soon as it knows that's true is you'll see the market come down, which will further add to recessionary expectations, which will further add to reduction in consumption, which will, further, which will accelerate the recession coming on. In fact, uh, up until very recently, I was I was wondering, is the recession going to come first and they'll try and pass the tax reduction bill as a way to get us out of it? Or are they going to pass the tax reduction bill first and then we go into the recession? I still can't tell which is going to happen for one reason is that I don't know how big the tax reduction is going to be. And I don't know if it's going to get through at all. And is it going to drag on for months or is it going to happen quickly? We know the pressures on the economy will, will continue to increase every month from here until the recession's in place. So are we 17 months from a recession? 
are we 12 months? I don't know. But if, if whereas I was saying it'd be 18 months or less last month, I think the time is shorter now. Is it shorter by a month or two? Can't tell you for sure. But it's clearly tightening up. The system is tightening up. Yeah. As is the market. And that's what you see in the market in the last week. So I have an interesting uh, idea here, which is that I actually might be a little more cynical than you on this. I think that the that the tax cuts, just by their nature, are going to be more appealing to some of, be able to peel off some of the Freedom Caucus people, and they might be willing to go against their own rule because it's tax cuts as opposed to spending. You know, from their moral perspective, they think that anything that benefits the rich is good, and handouts, as they would call them, uh, or social programs, as we might call them, it, are a waste of money and are bad. And thus, tax cuts, even though they add to the deficit, um, are still moral and thus something they might may, may yeah, it, do. It's possible. And, you know, I think that, uh, Matt, what's, one of the things also, the market hates uncertainty. And we're, we're getting a lot of uncertainty right now. And it seems to be growing, not shrinking. And what you did is just throw more uncertainty on it, right? The fact that you would even articulate that creates uncertainty. Right. So, as an example, and, and, and by the way, I don't think you're alone. I think there's a lot of people that have that fear. Um, and, and remember, fear is what kills economies. So, so where, where I would go with the thought you had is this. The probably the most knee jerk weapon in the president's arsenal to get the Freedom Caucus to break ranks with its philosophical view in the health care bill was this was the threat. If you don't do it, you're basically endorsing Planned Parenthood. Now, remember, to the Freedom Caucus, Planned Parenthood is synonymous with baby killing, right? Yeah, to a lot of the Republican Party. But I'm just saying, for sure, for the Freedom Caucus, so, I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not even talking about middle-of-the-road Republicans who actually probably think that, too. I'm just talking about the hardcore Freedom Caucus that you mentioned. Yeah. And to those people, it's baby killing. It's like what Pharaoh did to the innocents of Egypt. It's what King Herod did looking for Jesus. I mean— <laughs> We, we have a special place in our in our on our pantheon of evil people when we talk about baby killers. Sure. So to me, if that weapon didn't work to get health care through, if they couldn't say to the Freedom Caucus, look, you might not like this, swallow your principles. If we don't do this, you're going to be funding Planned Parenthood, which is exactly what Trump, as you know, threatened them with. They didn't buck. They didn't buck. They didn't buckle. I found that fascinating because I thought that was going to get them. Yeah. So now let's take the argument you just made, where you said, you know, Ronaldo, yes, they're against deficits and all that, but they love anything that'll make the rich richer because, frankly, they are rich. And, you know, if you're in Congress, you're going to end up very rich if you're even halfway intelligent because there's so many ways to get rich. And even legal ways, forget about how what's Tom Price did it, the illegal way, you know, like buying stocks of companies that he was benefiting with legislation. That was Price, right? That's right, Tom Price. Health and Human Services, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, that's illegal. I mean, I think he's gonna he's gonna get hit for that sooner or later. But, but even legally, you get to be a multimillionaire if you go to Congress. And that's and that's not even counting the fact that you get the best healthcare in for ever designed. I mean, my God, the best healthcare system in the world for America would be give me the same healthcare plan as the Congress has, but which they won't do. Uh, number two, they have. Uh, permanent benefits, retirement benefits, if you will, when they get out of office, and then they have the speaking, and then they have the right to be um, uh, lobbyists. So when you add it all up, if you come through Congress and you do a couple, two terms or three, you, you're never going to be worth less than a million, and and if you're smart enough, you're worth many millions, and it's, and not have to break the law, by the way. If you break the law, you're worth even, even more. So your point is they're taking care of their own future economic well-being by keeping taxes down. They have a philosophical view that all taxes are bad. They have a philosophical view that no government's better than some government. Even in the face of that, you're saying, some will swallow and say, yeah, you know what, we'll still do this tax deduction because it's it's, it's going to be better for me or the country or whatever silliness they come up with. I don't know. I, if they didn't buckle over Planned Parenthood, why would they buckle over that? Why, why would they go along with something that creates deficits? And remember, they have to vote affirmatively to get rid of the law that says when you pass a, when you pass a program, it has to be matched with revenues. That's a Republican Democratic law that's been passed years ago. And it, it's going to take every single Republican to want to change that vote. And now you've got to be down on the record that you were in favor of eliminating the law that forced balanced budgets. 
that's real tough for the team. The, the Freedom Caucus, the Tea I, Party. Yeah, I think I think the only way to know is we'll see what happens. Um, right, I agree. And, and I think that just my wager is is pure cynicism in that undoing Obamacare is harder than cutting taxes, just from an objective point of view. So we'll see we'll see how how much momentum there is and if there's yes. if there's pushback. And and remember, once Wall Street knows what is coming, in other words, once they know the shape of the deduction that's coming for either the wealthy or more likely corporate tax, once they know that, the market will adjust to the new reality and it will not be at a 17 PE. So if you were a market uh, denizen, if you were somebody who liked to play the market, this would be a time to start shorting. I've already told people months ago to short oil stocks. I said the oil stocks are, gonna, are down, are going to stay down. They're never going to come back to what they were. And someone like Rex Tillerson, I said, is a genius because he found a convenient excuse to sell all his Exxon stock money. He became secretary of state and nobody thought he was selling because he was at the high. But that's exactly what he did. He sold because he got out. And Rex is, I mean, that that was brilliant. Speaking of which, do you want to jump to uh, oil prices and gold prices and then come back to the Internet privacy bill? I do. But before I do, I just want to make one comment about why they're going to have so much trouble giving a tax deduction out when so much of the budget can't be touched. Sure. So, so you know he's not going to be able to touch the military budget. Whether he can increase it by fifty billion or not remains to be seen. But he's not going to decrease it. Clearly, right? It doesn't go right. along with his his outlook, and you know he, he's running on an expansion, not a contraction yeah. of the military. And the Freedom Caucus never reduces military spending, right? So that's that. Number two, you've got what some people refer to as entitlements. I call it the social safety net. So that's Social Security. It's Medicare, it's Medicaid. And what I think they've learned, really got, they really had their head handed to them on this one, is don't mess around with Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. That's what stopped this bill, the health bill. And when I saw the AARP come out strongly against the health bill, I said to my wife, that's it, that bill's dead. Because the, the politics of the AARP is something you can't buck. Uh, these are retired people, predominantly white, Caucasian people who are uh, 55 years of age and older, and they absolutely have the time to vote, and they vote very, very, very much their own interests. And when the AARP says this is going to help, this is going to hurt senior citizens, it's going to cost you money, they come out in droves, they call your office as your congressman, they write you letters, and they tell you they will remember at election time. And every congressman knows the AARP is great at remembering. So if you can't touch Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the military, the discretionary budget, as it's called, what's left is very small, very, very small. And if you want to take and put 50 or $100 billion into infrastructure spending, and remember, to give you some idea how small $50 billion is, the Obama infrastructure budget was seven hundred and fifty billion. Uh, anything less than five hundred billion is not going to turn the country around. It just isn't. In fact, many people at the time, um, like three years ago, when we were saying, you know, please give the president another five hundred billion infrastructure spending. That I was saying that. Uh, Paul Krugman was saying that. Joseph Stiglitz was saying that. Like, give this guy five hundred billion of infrastructure, and it'll turn the well, the economy will get on fire. Right. And he couldn't do it. So that's why the economy kept limping along, getting better every month for 75 consecutive months. But it could never really take off because it didn't have the it didn't have the, the fuel, which would have been the infrastructure spending. So a 50 billion dollar infrastructure bill is nothing. It's 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 a drop of water in the ocean. You won't even feel it go through the system. So to get a meaningful infrastructure bill, and he was talking one trillion dollars at one point, you, you have to take virtually the entire discretionary budget over. In fact, I'm not even sure there's there. I'm sure there is a trillion there. It probably is, but it's it's really tight. I don't think so, it is. I think discretionary budget is is 500 million or so. I'm sorry, 500 like 500 billion. Billion. It's something like that. It's very very small. So I mean, it's like how do you take a trillion out of 500 billion to start with, and that leaves everybody else completely unfunded? It's it's un, it's, it's 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 not approachable. Right. And that's what's really important. For people to remember there are certain voting blocks in this country who, whether they voted for Trump or not. In this case, the AARP, we will they will follow the AARP into battle before they follow Trump, and that means he's limited and he can't touch what some people call the third rail of American politics, which is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. 
Yeah, and, and those kind of that, those issues, and I, I think the strategy going in, just to summarize this whole thing, the strategy going into uh, the Trump administration from an economic point of view was we're going to go ahead and increase spending in areas we like, infrastructure, military, essentially the, the nationalist bucket, and we're going to leave entitlements so-called alone, and we're going to do tax cuts. And there'll be some economic benefit for those. But basically, we're going to, all of those things will be a, a net negative for the overall balance of payments for the country. So what they were planning on doing was massive deficit spending. They didn't say it like that, but that's what the plan was. But what we saw with the Freedom Caucus asserting itself is that that plan is now off the rails. And that's what's causing a ton of uh, reconsideration on Wall Street. Yeah, and, and I think that's exactly where you want to focus. In other words, what Wall Street's now saying is, hmm, maybe this guy can't give us this big plum that we thought we were getting. And if he can't, then we've overpriced the market. Now, how do we get out of this? Because our money's already in. So if we're at a 17 PE and we know it's going back down to 12, that's a big drop. And it's going so, back down to 12, not by increased earnings, but by a decrease in prices. Right, because what's going to happen is the, 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 the you can't sustain it at 17, so it's going to drop to something closer to a real number, and the, the, the most recent real number we have is 12. Right. And that's a strong number. I, by the way, to give you an idea, and I'm going to be talking about um, Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing, or 3M, later in the show, um, their PE is, 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 is like 10 and a half, 11. That's normal. Yeah, that's, like, that's, that's a company that's been around paying dividends for 58 years. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like it's clearly crazy when you're talking 17 P.E. And, and, and the valuations for a variety of companies are on the chopping block. It's not just retail that's getting hurt right now. I mean, um, there was one estimate I saw. I haven't seen an update, so I don't know if this is still true. But right after the Muslim ban, 6% of airline revenues got hit. Hmm. Well, when you take 6% out of United, American, and Delta, that's a big chunk of dough. Okay, where'd that go? Well, I don't think it's come back. I don't think more people are flying to America from the Middle East on airplanes today. My guess is fewer are. And if they do fly to America from the Middle East, from Yemen or Iran or Iraq or you name it, I don't think you're going to be flying on an American carrier if they can avoid it. Hmm. But, you know, another and I just had this conversation last night at a, at a, at a meeting. Uh, someone was asking me who has a significant portfolio and is heavily invested in um, hotel stocks. And I said, well, I, I'm a little nervous right now. He said, which one's you nervous about? I said, Marriott. First of all, they just star they swallowed Starwood. Starwood got out at exactly the right time. And the, the biggest growth engine in Starwood for the last couple of years has been their overseas properties. Uh, I said, so I'm really nervous about Marriott because Marriott's going to have a fall off in overseas room rentals. People are going to avoid an American hotel. They can go to a French one now or a German one. So... What happens to Marriott stock? Um, give you another one. What happens to Hilton, whose strongest division was its international division? Those people aren't, you know, do you really think that the that the number of rooms rented per night is going to go up at the Nile Hilton next week? I don't think so. I'd say the Nile Hilton's in trouble. Hmm. And by the way, and these American hotels at the same time are having to assume much higher security costs against their P&L. And last but not least, they want to translate dollars. They want to translate those overseas currencies into U.S. dollars, which means that they're going to have to make more because the dollar is worth more in order to get the same profit back home. So it's like it's like a triple whammy. And I would say that therefore hotel chains with large overseas momentum are going to get hurt just like American Airlines are going to get hurt. And that's not going to change overnight, by the way. It's like if, if, if Donald Trump tomorrow morning says, you know what, I was wrong, I love Muslims, and I'm going to drop all this stuff, and I'm going to be a straight player, people aren't going to forget that quick. So I think Marriott, Hilton, um, Delta, American, United are all going to suffer for a very long time into the future over the politics of what's happened and the, um, the, the amount of angst and anxiety, fear, and frankly, Enmity. Uh, and for you, those don't know that word, go look up enmity. I mean, it means not liking somebody. Hmm. And I think the enmity that's built against American corporations is going to have an effect initially in the uh, tourist and travel sector. Uh, and obviously, that's the hotels and airlines. But I think it's going to hit other sectors as well. 
I think the guy in um, in um, Iran, for example, this is this is a story that was on the front page just yesterday. The guy in the in Iran making the decision to whether to buy a French part or an American part is going to buy the French part. Period. He just is. Now, uh, Iran had already made the deal for Boeing's aircraft, and and I think there's a reason there because. I think the economics of it are far superior, and I think the the type of aircraft Boeing makes really fits um, fits Iran perfectly. But that deal was already done before all this Muslim stuff started. Uh, that deal wouldn't get done today if it hadn't already been done. So th- that's that's the kind of impact I'm looking at overseas. Yeah. Again, depressive in the stock market. Well, while we're talking about overseas, do you want to talk a little bit about currency speculation and some of the stuff going on in Europe? Yeah, I, I guess I, I don't want to talk about well speculation. I guess what I want to talk about is. I want people to start looking at the stuff that I look at and understand why I look at it. So, for example, if, if you see um, the price of a dollar or the price of a euro or the price of a, of a pound, it is in part a reflection of that country's economy. In the case of the euro, it's a reflection of the European economy. In the case of the pound, it's a reflection of the British economy. Uh, and in the case of the dollar, obviously, the U.S. economy. And what's happening now is there's a global realignment that's occurring. So when you see the euro drop precipitously as it has in the last year, because of the breakup of the European Union, because the, th- the threat that not only is the UK going to leave or wants to leave, but the threat that the uh, uh, the French want to be right behind them, uh, th- that's Europe is having a terrible time keeping itself together. In fact, they just did a declaration, I think it was out of Rome two days ago, uh, where they asked every country in the European Union, except Britain, of course, um, to declare that the European Union was critical to their collective and individual success, and they were all sticking by the European Union come hell or high water. Wow. Nice nice declaration, but at the end of the day, we'll see what the French voters do, and will Marie Le Pen be the next uh, president of France? Loyalty oaths, loyalty oaths can tend to, for, to foretell bad futures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, so... So let's look at a couple of currencies as an example so people can gauge how to look at this. Well, one currency I just alluded to is the euro. So the euro is uh, the European currency, and it's sitting there now at a dollar eight to the dollar. I mean, it, that's like a, a collapse practically. I mean, it's approaching what's called parity. Parity is when one euro equals one dollar. So, well, what, what is causing this to happen? Well, the European pressure on the European economy is increasing. And the value of the U.S. dollar has risen, thereby causing the number of euros you can buy for one dollar to go up. And the price, therefore, of the euro goes down. That makes a lot of sense. The price of the dollar being higher for the time being doesn't make that much sense. And I'll come back to that in a moment because that's where I want this conversation to lead. Let's go to another currency. Let's go to the pound. Well, I can't believe that England actually, even though they, they did sign the Brexit papers Yesterday, uh, Prime Minister May signed those papers, which is the which triggers a two year exit period, you know, over two year period. And as many commentators are saying on the news, her signing that paper is kind of the metaphorical equivalent of signing your divorce papers. What it is is the declaration that she is seeking a divorce on behalf of the United Kingdom from Europe, and and now she has to go through the process of disengaging herself, her country, from the European Union. What's going to happen, and you can be sure of this, is that the European Union is going to punish, terribly punish, Britain for Brexit. Why? Number one, they consider it the ultimate treason. And Britain was, up until that moment, one of the two most powerful players in the European Union, along with Germany. The second reason they will punish them is because they want to make an example. They want people to know, if you try to pull what the British pulled Boy, look what how bad they got messed up, and the same will happen to you. So I think that, that Britain, the pound drop is a reflection of the punishment they're going to receive in the future. And it's the beginning of a realization that England or UK, apart from the European Union, is of dramatically less economic value in the world. And, so yeah, what they're, and the UK itself may be... Uh, splintering and with Scottish independence, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and that's a good reference because Scotland recently notified Britain they'd like to redo and see if they couldn't do another independence vote. Uh, there was an article just today in the U- in the Financial Times of London that said um, maybe the breakup of, uh, of 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 Brexit from the Union 
will actually trigger the UK changing its form of government into a federalist form of government. That would be interesting. So the way the UK works now is Scotland gets a certain number of members they can send to parliament, but there is no Scottish equivalent of the state of California. They don't have that amount of independent sovereignty. This may cause a breakup of the UK, and you'll see in the UK, the state of Scotland, the state of Wales, the state of of, uh, England, the state of Northern Ireland. And by the way, Northern Ireland, as you know, is talking about joining Ireland, and that they now see they have more in common with Ireland, the Catholics to the south, than they do with the British in London. It's a fascinating situation. I mean, it's, it's moving at a mile a minute. But my belief is that... I can tell you in my own economic affairs, and I can't go too much in detail, but in my own economic affairs, about a year ago, I started allowing for Brexit. And when it happened, I said, okay, that's it. Investments that I have that depend on the UK economy are not going to do that well because the UK economy is going to go down. And people aren't going to locate in in UK because they want access to the European common market. In other words, right now, if I build a plant or a company in Europe, I get the the entire European continent is, is at my feet, basically exempt. So I can send goods from London into Berlin and pay no duties. I can move my people back and forth between London and Berlin and pay no no tariffs and also have no restriction on travel. Um, with the with the euro as a common currency, I was able to to, to take a trip to two or three different city major cities. So uh, Berlin, Paris, and Rome, and the same currency worked in all three. The currency never worked, and of course, UK, because they separately kept the pound. But my point in this is that the the, the goal of many companies to, in locating in London was, hey, they speak English like we do. We sort of understand their legal system. It's very similar to ours. It's Anglo-American jurisprudence. So let's have our base there, because we still get the whole continent as our as our customer base anyway, which is 320 million people. Where, so it's equivalent to being part of America. Now, can you imagine... If a small sliver of America, let's say, um, uh, let's take an example. Uh, let's say that the city of San Diego, roughly, the city and county of San Diego chose to leave the United States of America and be on its own and give up access to the 350 million consumers in America and have to start paying tariffs when you send something from San Diego to Los Angeles, having, and that, by the way, that distance is further, San Diego to Los Angeles is larger than the distance distance between England and France, just to give you some idea how tightly Europeans wound. Yeah. So I, I think that you, you, if, if somebody proposed taking San Diego out of the union, you'd say, what are they crazy? I would never survive. It can't. And that's pretty much what you're, what England's going to face. So England will continue to be a smaller and smaller fish in a larger and larger global pond and its economy will suffer as a result. And my suspicion is that that the UK, the United Kingdom, will end up being considerably less important than any other major country in Europe and start to look more and more like one of the Balkan states than it does like the UK today. So not only is it the end of the British Empire and you can hear the bugle playing and you can see the guy saluting as the flag comes down in India. I mean, this is really serious. This is like, this is not only the end of the British Empire, forever. This is the end of Britain as a major world power and as a major financial power. And by the way, that means that the number one generator of money in Europe, in London, is of course, uh, fleet uh, is the, um, is, 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 is finance. And the, the value of having your financial capital in London plummets if it's not part of the European Union and they're starting to figure that out. So I don't know how they're going to come back from this. So we're, before we get low on time here, Ronaldo, I want to hit on gold prices since uh, we've seen those go up since that you recommended people buy them. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think it, and you know, check back, folks. But I think we were, it was gold was about eleven hundred, maybe eleven fifty an ounce when we started telling you it's time to take gold as a precaution against inflation and against instability. Because remember, fear causes people to spend less, therefore the consumer market doesn't work as well. But gold is where they go when they're really afraid. So we number of months ago said, we're going to put 10%, which I did in my portfolio into gold. And then last month I said, I'm going to up at the 15%. And I'm sorry to report that that turned out to be financially very wise. Because if you take 1100 as your base number, the price of gold has gone up 14% just in the last few months, 14%. Stock market 
isn't going up like that right now. And I think that's a direct reflection of people's fear and uncertainty. Uh, by the way, before we leave Europe, um, I just thought of something because this affects uh, not only oil and gold. Yeah. Uh, Russia, as you know, is in a terrible recession and it's getting worse. And clearly ending sanctions was the payoff, one of the payoffs that Putin wanted by interfering with the American election as he's done. Um, the other payoff is he wanted to gut the U.S. intelligence community. It looks like he's doing that pretty well because the, the executive branch is at war with the intelligence community. And the third thing he wanted to do is he wanted to destroy the non-military component of the U.S. government, which has been winning all the battles for the last 30, 40 years, and that's the State Department. So so Putin's won on all three scores, but what he hasn't won, he hasn't gotten sanctions relieved yet. Right. And without sanctions relief and, you, and, and it continuing to decrease in the price of oil, the recession in Russia can only get worse month by month, year by year. I'm fascinated because I've been saying this for a while. Just last week, there were demonstrations, significant demonstrations in Russia. 83 that cities. Not, in 83 cities. And that hasn't happened for, well, seven, six years, I think, right? Right. Yeah, the, the big uprising was... Yeah. Uh, and and, and, and Putin, is a, yeah. Putin is a czar. He has no intention of ever giving up power. He's been in power for 17 years. I mean, if that doesn't define an oligarch, an autocrat, what does? He's not going to go away until he's, I mean, he might be there running that country for the next 20 years. He'll continue to kill all of his opponents. He'll continue to kill newspapers that don't agree with him. I mean, the man's a murderer. I mean, he constantly kills people. And, you know, that's what he did for a living in the KGB. So it's like, that's what he was trained to do. It's like, you can't blame the guy. He's a carpenter, and that's what he was trained to be. <laughs> he nails people. But, but what's important is, at some point, uh, I think there's an old Russian saying, um, hungry men make revolutions. So if you want to know what Putin's up against right now, he's up against an economy that is in a serious recession, meaning probably 11% down from a year ago or more. It was certainly from a year or two ago, two years ago, but it's down and it's dropping. It's not, it's not, it's not stabilizing yet. Why? And this goes to the price of oil. So as you know, from listening to this show, we predicted that the price of oil could never get above $55 a barrel and that likely would hover in the much lower than that. And when it went above 50, I said, okay, it's bumping up against the top. And, and there's all kinds of gimmicks that were played to make it go higher. I mean, they tried to uh, say they were going to curtail pumping. They tried to do a bunch of different things. At the end of the day, OPEC has done everything. Russia has done everything they can to get the price of oil up. And it, it, all the oil companies in America, they cannot get it up. So today, price of oil sits at $47 a share, a barrel, $47 a barrel. And that's exactly the target range I would expect. And that is not a good long-term price. Uh, I believe in five years, 47 is going to look like a, a, a really good price for oil, given where I think it's going to go. A good meaning, so, meaning good for the oil companies and good for Russia. Yeah, I think, I, I think anything between 45 and 50 is going to look like a good range because I see going below 45 as a real possibility within 18 months. So oil prices are down. That's very good for those of us who use oil. Uh, by the way, $47, as you know from listening to this show, we can frack oil in the United States, and I'm very much against fracking as an environmentalist, but the truth is, at $47 a barrel, people are going to frack like crazy. So, because we can make money at $47 a barrel, fracking. You can't pump oil in the Arctic for $47. That's good news, because you'll never get it up out of, the, out of the ground and sell it for that price. So when the oil companies really believe, which they're starting to, that this thing's permanently going to be at $50 a barrel or less. That means they can't afford some of the more dangerous exploratory drilling in the Arctic. It means they can't do some of the more uh, deep uh, deep ocean, like the Brazilian plan. They can't go deep ocean because in the Brazilian plan, uh, last time I looked three years ago, the price of a barrel of oil was going to be $75 at the wellhead. That means at the top of the surface of the platform, not even before it's refined and sold. Well, that oil is worthless now. It, you, you can't afford to drill it. Uh, and what you're going to see is that the expensive forms of drilling, which are history, that's how we got here, are going to be unsustainable. And what's going to work is fracking until total consumption of oil goes down to the point where those countries which choose not to frack, hopefully one day that'll be the United States, um, will get out of the oil business. Now, the exception to that are places like Saudi Arabia uh, and, and certain parts of the Middle East where oil is probably $8 a barrel at the wellhead because there's not a whole pool of it. 
The problem is that Saudi Arabia, like all the Middle Eastern countries, depended on oil revenues at 50 and 75 and $80 a barrel. And so their negative cash flow to sustain their state is hurting them very badly. I think the Saudi monarchy is in trouble. So, Ronaldo, last month we had uh, talked about the possibility of, of letting people know some companies that we like from a moral perspective and from a financial outlook perspective. Um, we got a lot of feedback asking us to do that and to keep doing that. So did you have uh, one you'd like to recommend in particular? Yeah. I will. And, and by the way, we, you and I talked before we got on the line about a number of companies. And, and again, our job is not to be um, – we're not trying to pick people in the stock market. That's that's not my goal here. My goal is to be an educator and use this information as a way to help educate. So a lot of people like what Howard Schultz is doing with Starbucks. And they believe that Starbucks is a great company. It's it's raised its wages. It's decided it's going to employ, what, 10,000? They're going to hire 10,000 refugees. Across the world, not in the U.S. because right. they can't get here. And they're trying to be a responsible company. And, and, and if you go to the Just Capital Index, you'll see you know, how the top companies and the largest companies in America are ranked and those which are doing the best job doing the right by, so right by society. And, you know, and I think there's a, that's a good starting point. And, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about that next month because I'd like to talk about some of those companies and which of those I think are really great companies from a stock perspective. But the company I want to pick today is – Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing, 3M. And and by the way, Matt, save me one minute at the end because I'm going to have uh, I'm going to have a a fun little observation I want to share with people at the very end of the show. So Minnesota Mining Manufacturing, why is that a interesting stock to me? Well, it's interesting because Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing has a history that for 58 years it's been paying out a huge amount of its profits in the form of dividends. Now. Their price-earnings ratio is much too high. It's much, much too high. It's way above the, the 17 um, number if you look at it ex-dividend. But if you look at the dividend itself, you say, what can I earn from um, 3M if I bought the stock and the stock market doesn't go up or it doesn't go down? Or better yet, stock market does go down if I bought it at today's price. Right now at a 17 PE on the average at S&P 500, how much of a yield in dividends can I receive in cash? And the answer is 2.5%. So I could buy 3M stock and have a 2.5% dividend. And I can sit on that dividend forever because I don't care what the stock price is. I'm going to get the same $4.70 paid quarterly come hill or high water. So I, don't, I can forget about the market price going up and down. I, I don't even worry about it. I just look at the dividend. And I've talked to you before in this program about dividend stocks. Why am I raising dividend stocks today? Because in a market downturn, when the 17 PE gets to a more normal ratio of 12 or 10, what's going to happen is those companies with a strong dividend are going to outperform the market. In other words, their price will be higher because their price is calculated as a multiple of dividend. That's really important. So if you want to know where to make money in the market, you pick an old line company like 3M. Go look at the products they make. They're interesting products, and they're very stable. They have a policy, which they've been following for 58 years, to increase dividends. Their current yield is at $2.46. Um, the, 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 the closing price today was $190 a share. And if that price of the, of, of, of the share price comes down to 170 they're still going to pay me $4.70. So let's see how that works. Let's say that the, the 3M, because the market comes down, goes from $190 value stock to $170. Okay, so it drops $20. Okay, so $20 and you divide that by $190. That would be a drop of 10%, 10.5%. That stock now at $170, though, because I'm going to get a $4.70 dividend, no matter what the price is, and if I divide that by 170 instead of 190, it means the dividend yield went from 2.5% up to 2.7%. The yield went up. Market price down, yield up. And every time they increase the dividend, yield goes further up. And, and, and as I've said on this program a number of times, you would have no trouble picking a, a whole bunch. Talk to whoever advises you in stocks. There are a lot of stocks out there that are solid as the rock at Gibraltar, been around for decades, 
who are paying dividends, you can easily get a 3% dividend yield. And when the market comes down to more reasonable levels, it'll be even higher. So that's my stock for you as a suggestion. So what I'm trying to explain to you is don't look at the PE so much. Look at the PD, the price times the dividend. That's a more reasonable thing to look at. And the way we, the way we, way we talk about that is we talk about it, the dividend yield, which means the, um, what you're getting in cash from what you paid for the stock. Ronaldo, you said you had a closing thought to share with us as we, before we wrap up. Here it is real quickly. You ready? Watch some of the news that's happening today, particularly watch what's coming out of Pete Bar, uh, Preet Bar, Bahara's office. He's now retired. He's been fired. But the cases he started in New York have enormous impact nationwide, in some cases globally. But the one to watch, the, my, my favorite story of the day is Fox News. Watch for this one, folks. It looks like a couple of the senior executives who either left Fox voluntarily or were fired, and this would include Roger Ailes, who, were, who was fired because an internal investigation claims that he sexually harassed Gretchen Carlson and Megyn Kelly and others. It turns out that the government is offering people, including Ailes, immunity if they testify against Fox. I believe they will testify against Fox. And what they're going to say is Fox lied, broke the rules of the SEC, and did not disclose payments to people who were for, who got settlements because of harassment. And if that's true, that's a violation of the SEC rules. It, it will lead to shareholder suits. It will be a massive financial Donnybrook for Fox. And it will impair Fox's ability to reach its viewers at precisely the time that Trump is most relying on them to carry his message. Well, that too could complicate, if you will, the the current administration's agenda. It couldn't happen to a nicer group of media moguls. Uh, <laughs> Ronaldo, thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. If you want to stay in touch with us in between shows, please write to us at info at worldbusiness.org and check out our new website at worldbusiness.org. Until then, thank you very much. See you next month, everyone. Bye now.